Good morning, and welcome to episode 424 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. Hello. Hello. Anything to say? Any Ryan Webb, Matt Albers updates? Um, no, there was something, but I forget what it was, so I probably don't need to go over it. Uh, should we plug the Sabre Seminar? Uh, yeah, sure. Sam's talking about the the sabermetrics scouting and science of baseball seminar, which is uh, colloquially referred to as the Sabre Seminar. This is the uh, the series of presentations and panels and, and discussions organized by our friend Dan Brooks. It is going to be the fourth annual one of these. Um, it's held in mid-August, August 16th to 17th in Boston, and it is held to benefit the Jimmy Fund, which is a Boston area cancer research. All of the proceeds go directly to the Jimmy Fund. Uh, Dan gets great guests, people from teams like Ben Sherrington and, and Jeff Lunau this year, uh, people from BP, people from other sabermetric sites. I went last year and it was really fun and I learned a lot. Um, and tickets are on sale now. So you can go to saberseminar.com slash tickets and, and get them. Uh, it's a, it's a two-day thing, and you will feel good about yourself and, and also learn things. So we recommend that you attend. All right, so it's listener email show. I've picked out some emails. Let's start. I guess we should start with the customary Mike Trout question. Just get it out of the way. Um and this one is a question after okay. your own heart because it's a Mike Trout question and a Barry Bonds question. Two of your favorite topics to discuss. This uh, comes from Jake Mintz from Cespedes Family Barbecue. And Jake says, if you had the choice, would you rather take current Trout or 2001 Bonds? You'd get Bonds' 2001 season and the certainty that comes with knowing the remainder of his career, or you get current Trout. You don't know if he'll stay with you past his current contract or what kind of player he might be in five years, but he could be more valuable in the long run. Side question, if you take Trout, at what point would you take Bonds? 1999, 98, 97. Another side question, if you take Bonds, at what point would you take Trout? 2002, 2003, Bonds. So just for reference, Barry Bonds from 2001 on, was worth 54.4 wins above replacement. Which is <laughs> and the last, pretty crazy. <laughs> and one of those one of those years he missed almost entirely. Yes, right. He had point, 14, point six and warp in 2005. And, and then the next two he he was in his 40s. <laughs> yes, so he was basically a a border a borderline Hall of Fame career after age 36 despite missing a season. So. Probably more, probably more warp than than Jim Rice. Probably. Uh, let me see. It's probably very close. <laughs> Jim Rice had forty six point four. So yes. <laughs> I believe any two of those four years would be more than Bruce Souter. Uh huh. So, um, so do you take Trout over a guaranteed fifty four point four warp? 
and this is uh, this is not knowing what happens to Trout beyond his his current contract, I suppose. So yeah, but um, but so it's seven basically it's seven years of Trout, uh, and then possibly re-signing him. Uh, you know, you have you have seven years to convince him to sign for less than he's worth uh, yeah. beyond the seventh year. Uh, but seven years of Trout or the final year, uh, seven years of Barry Bonds, um, and it's well. I mean, for starters, Bonds, of course, would. I mean, Bonds would get uh, presumably Bonds would get suspended right now, almost immediately, if he were. <laughs> yes, I if, had. If, if he were, if he were two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three, Bonds, he would almost certainly be suspended. I mean, probably. Yes, it would be suspended, and so in that case, uh, he would be not very much good for you now. The question is whether after his 50 games, uh, first off, one question would be whether Bud Selig would allow him to go free after 50 games, or if Bonds is like A-Rod, uh, the yes. sort of player that Bud Selig... <laughs> he uh, would stop at know, nothing. Yes, he, uh, he will, uh, after, he, after he hunts him down, he will uh, pr- uh, you know, feast slowly on his uh, thick hind quarters and keep mm-hmm. any, any scavengers from getting any of him. Mm-hmm. So it's conceivable that Bonds would be punished far beyond 50 games. Uh, if he were suspended for only 50 games, which would take about three or four warp off of that total. Um, do we believe that he would be at the same high level? Uh, I think we've had this conversation before. In fact, I know we have. I think we had it when I was uh, still in the, in the Honda Fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, and I, I uh, thought that he would not. Yeah, right. right. We both uh, are aware um, of the evidence that currently exists about the likely ineffectiveness of performance-enhancing drugs, and yet we also both can't believe that it wouldn't apply to Barry Bonds, mm-hmm. uh, or it would apply to Barry Bonds. Um, wouldn't apply, would apply. So um, so the question would then be, uh, how good would he be when he came back? Uh, it's probably fair to say that, it's probably fair to say he, probably fair to say he wasn't on performance-enhancing drugs in 2006 and 2007, because uh, that was in the middle of testing. Uh, if he was, then, you know, who, uh, that would indicate that he could get away with it forever. So let's just assume he wasn't on PEDs in 2006 and 2007, and in that case, his uh, performance is still super elite, especially as a hitter, um, and you know, arguably, eh, maybe arguably, fits in with his uh, with with age-related decline seamlessly, and maybe suggests that a huge portion of his uh, elite four-year run was true talent and not PED-driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a it's not a perfectly smooth decline, but I mean you know he had a 480 on base percentage at 42. Um, so I guess that I would say that if Bonds were playing now, in those seven years, I would probably count on 43 to 47 warp out of him, hmm. and he'd be making more than Trout is making. I assume we're going to adjust for inflation because his salary uh, back then was 18 million dollars, which was a pretty I, he was. Pretty close to the highest paid player in the game. He wasn't because A-Rod was there the whole time. But, you know, he was paid $18 million a year for those years. Uh, adjusted for inflation is probably like 25 ish or more. Um, so compared to Trout, he'll be paid more. And I think that Trout can top six to eight wins a year. Uh, it's close. But I, I, would, I would narrowly bet the over 
if you told me 49 wins over Trout's next seven years. Mm-hmm. Well, you you really dug into the all of the implications of this question that I was not even really considering. Um, if I mean, I think it I think it might be a stretch to assume that he was not on anything in his final couple seasons. Um, I mean, we we have seen players beat testing one way or another, so I would not be sh- shocked to find that that he was doing so also. Um, uh-huh. But what if, I mean, can we can we take the question on its face without considering those factors and say that if we had a player, if, uh, all right, so if you're saying that it's narrowly Trout, uh, even considering all of these caveats, then I assume that if we're just talking about a player who is guaranteed to give you 54.4 wins above replacement and it's not bonds and it's not a guy who is potentially going to test positive it's just a guy who's definitely giving you those wins you would take him over trout uh no i wouldn't because the trout's going to be underpaid for those seven years <laughs> what if what if money is no object uh, well, geez, but now we're talking about something unrealistic and <laughs> not tied to the present game yes. at all. Sorry to dumb this down. Uh, if you're asking me whether I, are you asking I guess me? I'm the, basically, just, are you asking me a twist on the old certainty versus risk question? Yeah, pretty much. I, um, I, I, I believe if I'm being consistent here, I believe I always come down on the side of risk. Uh huh. Uh, that I, that I would rather have the volatility. I I believe that's how I always come down. I I think that's how I answered on the AJ Burnett question, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, and I believe that's how I answer when people asked us whether I would rather have a streaky hitter or a non-streaky hitter. Mm-hmm. So okay, so you're you're taking Trout pretty much regardless. Um. Uh, wait, if you're giving me. If forty nine is the is the magic number, it's not trout. Uh, Bonds made you know had fifty four, but let's yeah. just say let's just say that uh, since you're not giving me even one steroid suspension, which seems unfair, <laughs> and you're not giving me any salary uh, uh, adjustment, can we just lower it to forty nine, uh, and and then you can ask me whether I take the over or the under on forty nine. Uh, well, you've already said that you would, right? I think. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, but if we go back to two thousand right. bonds, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no longer answering you. I'm now trying to convince you to ask the question that I've already answered. <laughs> <laughs> if we add two thousand bonds into the equation, does so that sway you? Well, because I don't get an eighth year of trout necessarily. Mm-hmm. I, I'll be lucky to get. Well, I mean, probably I'll get a draft pick. Probably right. I mean. Yeah, you think draft picks are going to be around in seven years? It's possible that they might not be. You've got a, yeah. a pretty decent chance of re-signing him, though. I mean, I would think, assuming the Angels are still owned by someone with a lot of money and, uh, you know, assuming he hasn't had some kind of conflict with whoever the manager is then. I mean, he- Yeah, but now I'm signing him to a deal that we're going to very ambivalently nod our heads and go, well, it's really risky. I mean... Like, you know, Unless they the do Tigers a, they could do a second a, extension, like a second Longoria deal. They could, right. Uh, that would that's that's part of what you get for having trout during this period. But you also I mean, if you're gonna 
if you're going to attach year eight to 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 what I get, I'm worried that you're also attaching year eighteen to mm-hmm. it, and that I'm not going to be all that thrilled with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. I'll say uh, you give me bonds. Uh, so the problem, the thing that gets tricky is that bonds in '99 wasn't very good. Uh, he was okay, but you can't extend it much. You'd have to almost go all the way to 98. Put buns in 97, 98, and, yeah. And, and that's and too much. And six was really good. Yeah, and then it's too much. Now now we're way beyond. So I would say that I would take, um, I probably would take it with, with, with the extra year of bonds. I would say that I'll take Trout over bonds final seven years, uh, and the discount that I would have to get would be basically one extra year of bonds mm-hmm. to make it. To make it worth my while, which is kind of incredible when you think about it, <laughs> like what we're really talking about. But I mean, if you, it's almost like the the four years that Bonds had, though, almost uh, like those can't be topped. There's almost nothing you could give me that would beat those four years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you know the last three were he was he was old, he was often injured, he was a defensive liability, and and he was amazing. But you know you put him in a like for instance as good a hitter as he was. Uh, you put him in a lineup where um, Ray Durham isn't protecting him anymore, and where um, you know uh, uh, I'm trying to remember who was there in 2006 and 2007. Edgardo Alfonso isn't protecting him, um, and you know he loses a great deal of those intentional walks. And you know it's a good slugging percentage. It's a very good slugging percentage, but you know knock 70 points of on base percentage off of those lines, and he's not quite. The, the same deal, right? Mm-hmm. Right. This seems like a good opportunity for you to share the best Barry Bonds fun fact ever on the podcast. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I think uh, Mark Sweeney <laughs> was doing a little protection of Bonds <laughs> at that point. Uh-huh. Uh, some Pedro Feliz. I know Pedro Feliz started a year as the cleanup hitter or maybe the number five hitter behind Bonds. Pedro Feliz. Uh, yeah. Well, in 2007, Bonds... Bonds was cleaning up mostly, and Durham was hitting fifth. Ryan Klesko was hitting fifth. Uh, Benji Molina was hitting fifth. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, Benji Molina is a good one. I forgot about Benji Molina. Yeah. Uh, so this is my my new favorite Bonds. Uh, recently fun fact. unearthed. My previous favorite Bonds fun. You know my previous favorite Bonds fun fact. Uh, I will when you say it. I don't think I do now. It's that uh, he's. He has a 5,000 OPS against, you know, X number of pitchers, oh, inc- yes. in- including Guillermo Moda, who he faced nine times. Right. Last time I shared that, I got a bunch of angry pe- angry people emailing me saying, like, that that he was walked eight times and they thought he had hit nine home runs. And to that, I say, you are missing the point. It is actually more impressive that there are eight walks in there. The, the fact that Guillermo Moda could face him nine times and eight times just give up. Like that, in no circumstance was Guillermo Moda willing to pitch to him, except once, and in that situation, he gave up a home run. It's actually the 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 if if it, if it were five for five with five home runs, less impressive. Now, if it were nine for nine with nine home runs, I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. But if it were five for five with five home runs, it would be less impressive than nine plate appearances without ever doing anything but homer. Um, all right, so this is the new one. It is loading. Uh, all right, here we go. Here we go. Mm. So, from 2001 to 2004, Barry Bonds had 138 plate appearances against pitchers in the same season 
that those pitchers got Cy Young votes. Okay? We're yes. clear on that. Mm-hmm. In those 138 plate appearances, Bonds hit. 327, 522, 786. <laughs> so against Cy Young vote getters at the at the Cy Young, game, Cy Young winners, including Cy Young winners, but Cy Young uh, vote getters. Wait, uh, how many? Just anyone who got a vote at all? Anyone who got a vote. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, so uh, in, winners or or not, uh, and I will say of the 138 plate appearances. Roughly 98 of them were against Randy Johnson. So, like, we're we're talking about good pitchers, and the rest were Eric Gagne. Um, we're talking about very good pitchers, and so he had a 13.08 uh, OPS uh, in those plate appearances. Uh, crazy. Yeah, he had one year where he faced Roy Oswalt seven times, and he had a 37.50 OPS. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I had been writing, man. Would have been nice. Yeah. Yeah, I was writing, but I was writing about small town government. <laughs> that was a major mistake. You should have done it in a different sequence. You should be writing about small town government now and baseball while Bonds was around. Yeah. All right. Uh, this question comes from Matt Trueblood. He says, Billy Hamilton has had a really brutal start to the season. I don't think he's in immediate danger of being benched, optioned, or even pushed down the lineup, though, at least for any significant period. So, how many plate appearances with a 300 on base percentage do you guys think it would take for Hamilton to lose his spot in the everyday lineup? How many um, with a 280 on base percentage? How many with a 260? Somebody, I had this conversation with somebody uh, in in real life uh, on opening day. Uh-huh. Actually, as a matter of fact, 300 he could go forever. He'll right. I mean, if he he'd go for what 17 years, I guess. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess you could still say that. Maybe the leadoff spot is not the best place to put him if he has a 300. But if he has a 300, he's definitely worth starting every day just based on the, the defensive value and, and the steals. Um, yeah, I mean, he'd be, a, he'd be a three or four win player probably. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was... With a, with a 300 on base percentage. That was I know this has been a topic projection. You, yeah, you've, this has been a topic that you've been uh, interested in, and I've, I'm surprised you haven't written about it uh, since his... Pe- mm-hmm. Yeah, that came out because I wrote about it briefly in a Pakota article at BP, and then I wrote a, a Grantland thing about it. So he he had um his Pakota projection was for like a two ninety six or ninety seven on base percentage, um, but he was still projected to be worth I think close to three wins just from the defense and the running. So and and the Reds it seems like don't really have a traditional leadoff man like they're not gonna put Joey Votto there and they don't really have any big on base threats other than Votto it's kind of like Votto your your presumptive National League on base percentage leader and a bunch of below average OBP guys in their lineup so that's part of it is that they might just kind of leave him there because he's speedy and he would be worth playing. So even if he doesn't have your typical leadoff man OBP, they they might just leave him in that spot. You know, if he has a 280, uh, I don't know. It probably in I guess in practical terms, it probably matters what his batting average is as to whether they would let him stay there or not. I mean, if he's mm-hmm. hitting, if he's hitting. 250 or 260 with a 280 on base percentage it, it looks respectable if he's hitting 
210, not so much. Um, yeah, and pro- I mean, it might matter what his slugging percentage is as well. Yeah, and we can and, just assume that it will be bad, probably. But. And we, I, I would say we also don't really know yet what his base running is going to be like. We had this like incredible glimpse of it last summer, mm-hmm. um, but we don't really know yet whether it's going to be, um, you know, like, like let's say he, because Vince, I'm going to look at Vince Coleman right now, but let's say he had a, you know, a 305 on base percentage. Does he in that situation steal 120 in 125 attempts, or does he steal 65 in 75 attempts? I mean, that's a big difference. Not j- it's a it's a sizable difference in value, but it's a big difference in perception. Mm-hmm. Um, so Vince Coleman in 1986 had a 301 on base percentage and stole 107 bases in 121 drives. Right um, and. Uh, and that was in an era where it was a lot more acceptable to get caught and where guys did get caught. Guys don't get caught nearly as much as they used to. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't think we really know the answer to what he's going to steal yet. I mean, Pakoda, I think projected him to steal like 76 or something like that. Um, and that's a, a, a fine guess at, at what he might do as a, as a median, mm-hmm. but I don't think anybody is, is ruling out 130 and I, I wouldn't really rule out that he gets caught, you know, I've seen him steal bases. I, I saw him in the Cal League, and he wasn't very good at it. And, mm-hmm. you know, minor leaguers did throw him out. So we don't know whether last summer was the real Billy Hamilton or whether his kind of minor league caught stealing rates are the real Billy Hamilton. Because mm-hmm. I think he was stealing like 83% success or something in the minors, which if you dock that a little bit for the majors, it's not an automatic green light necessarily in that in that case. Mm-hmm. And... Well, Vince Coleman in that 1986 season hit leadoff 145 times for the Cardinals. Um, and he was, I mean, he was a probably a below average left fielder. Um, so you would think that based on Hamilton's position and defensive value, it'd be a lot easier to leave him in the lineup. Of course, that was also the mid-80s and people weren't paying as much attention to on-base percentage. But um, potentially he's a, a much more valuable player because uh, Coleman just, you know, had the flashy stolen base title or totals, but wasn't really all that valuable. He was just kind of a average guy in his best seasons. Um, so, yeah, so, so Hamilton, by, by the way, uh, last year in AAA, he only stole 75 bases uh, and at only an 83% success rate um, with a 308 on base percentage in a full season. Uh, and since he got promoted to Double A, he's only stolen at an eighty percent success rate, which just isn't that extraordinary. And so, like, I'm not saying that he's not better than that, and I'm not saying that he's not worse than that. I'm saying that it's it's actually one of the hardest things to predict about Billy Hamilton is not his offense, which I feel confident saying is not going to be good, but will be kind of you know good enough. Uh, that he can be a two or three win player based on his defense and base running, even at this stage in his career. It's really his base running because there's there's like sixty or seventy stolen bases worth of volatility in in what I can imagine him doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, this question also comes from Matt. Uh, he he first talks about how uh, 
Didi Gregorius is in the minors. He lost the the position battle for the shortstop job to Chris Owings, and Kevin Towers shot down any notion of platooning Gregorius and Owings. Matt says, while the consensus seems to be that this is for the best, Gregorius is a clearly superior defender and hits right-handed pitchers well. Playing every day is probably the optimal thing for any young player's development, but it seems to me that a substantial part-time role only dooms players who are destined to be doomed by something anyway. In the meantime, the Diamondbacks are giving away wins by not carrying an MLB-caliber player who could help paper over the weaknesses of their rookie shortstop. The Tigers are handcuffing themselves, too, playing a terrible platoon shortstop platoon instead of signing Steven Drew. Are teams getting too invested in the long term, always the long term, the smart investments, the value of draft picks, the Cardinals model, instead of just going for it sometimes? The success cycle theory has been essentially dismissed, but is that because it was never correct or because it's being phased out by a lot of the very methodical executives who think more like economists than competitors, at least on occasion? I love the Cardinals model and the Astros Cubs model and even the Tigers Dodgers Yankees model. I get where everyone is coming from and nothing beats sustainable success. If everyone comes to think more or less the same way, though, it seems to me that no success would be sustainable anymore because parity will overrun the game. If everyone is better, is anyone better off? Can't wait to hear your answer, Ben. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think, I don't know. I think there are probably times where draft picks have been overvalued or, or whether a, where a team has put the future ahead of the present too much. I mean, the, the Tigers shortstop situation, if that was if that's a matter of a draft pick or, you know, I mean, to me, that only makes sense if they just don't have the money to spend on Stephen Drew, right? Like, they just literally don't have it. Otherwise, why would the Tigers not want to sign Stephen Drew when the alternative is, you know, Alex Gonzalez? Um, it seems to me that that they that, that was a no-brainer. And, of course, you know, when Iglesias was hurt, everyone immediately said— Oh well, now Drew is going to go to the Tigers, and it hasn't happened. And uh, I I can't really think of a a good reason why it wouldn't have happened, unless really the Tigers are totally tapped out. Um, I mean, I don't know about. Uh, I have written about you know if everyone is smart and everyone hires a smart GM, then is there even any advantage to? hiring one anymore or you know if every gm is at least competent and is not making the stupid mistakes that maybe they used to make in the past then then it's pretty tough to upgrade or to really get an edge by just hiring a smart guy someone who might have given you an edge a decade ago or two decades ago so that's the case i think um i I don't know as for the, the diamondbacks you figure maybe they're hoping to shop one of these shortstops or trade one of them and and potentially a guy like Gregorius is worth more if he's playing every day and excelling in AAA than if he's playing in a, a part-time role in the majors and and possibly not adapting so well to it. So um, maybe they consider that worth something to them, worth more to them than whatever advantage he would give them if he were actually playing at the major league level. I don't know. You have any thoughts? Um, hmm, hmm. I don't necessarily. Hmm. I wonder if uh, 
the fact that uh, GMs don't get fired anymore, as we've talked about, I mean, obviously they will. A whole bunch of them are going to get fired probably all at once. And yes. <laughs> this trend will uh, be over. But you know, as we've talked about, no GMs have been fired in a long time. I wonder if, I wonder if there's this like sense of security that they have all collectively grown to feel, mm-hmm. which is why they're playing the, the long game so much, you know? Because mm. it really does feel like you see very little... Um, uh, you see very little, uh, you see very few decisions that punt the future or, or mortgage the future anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's like, I mean, really, what do these GMs care about some draft pick? <laughs> like, unless they really think that they're going to either be there in six years or that they're somehow going to get credit in six years or that they're all really good people with total integrity um, and they just want to do the best job or that they don't have as much power and that, in fact, uh, the sort of strength of the organization, that the organization keeps GMs in check by having lots of kind of veto points um, between them and and a bad move. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder whether the increased attention paid to prospects these days has made it just as important for a GM's job safety to have a strong farm system as to have a successful major league club. Um, yeah, yeah, that could be. It, it might, it might actually be that that's sort of the currency. That unless you're winning the World Series uh, or um, getting to the World Series, maybe the second best thing is to have a, you know, a dope farm system. Yeah, especially because then you can point to that and say that Keep you me here for right, you deserve to, got to a have plan. a longer leash. Right, <laughs> in in four or five years, all this talent is going to come together, and I put it all there and. You should let me. Uh, you should let me see how it pans out. Maybe that's that. kind of the Dayton Moore plan, I guess. Right? Say you have a seven-year plan or a ten-year plan, and just kind of keep extending the the window on your plan while you have a, a great farm system that is potentially a couple of years away from doing something really good. Um, so maybe maybe that has something to do with it. I wonder how long. I wonder how. Uh... I wonder how long you could plausibly say your plan is. Like, I mean, you probably couldn't get away with a 35-year plan. <laughs> probably not. He's gotten away with 10 years without really winning anything and keeps getting extensions. So, But has he ever said it's a 10-year plan? I think so. <laughs> I think oh, so. wow. Uh, That's I'm awesome. Pretty, I'm pretty sure. Um, all right. Uh, let's do our play index segment. All right. Um, so... Uh, I started thinking about roster flexibility and how the you know the teams like the Rays and the A's to to really name two have a lot of guys who can slot into different roles and they use them in a lot of those different roles and we talked about how uh, it seems as though more te- I don't we've talked about it how it seems like this I don't know if we found that it's true but use their DH spot as uh, you know a, a, as a uh, place to rotate guys mm-hmm. um, that's a, been a strategy forever by some teams but it feels more common now so I started wondering whether um, whether we see fewer players who only play one position. Uh-huh. Um, now than we did in the past. And uh, so I limited this to the year since 1998, which is the last time that baseball had expansion, partly because this grew out of a, a, a different question that I was looking at um, that I'll also probably bring up that uh, requires it to be post-expansion. And um, so I looked uh, for, in the, in the play index, uh, under the batting season finder, one of the things you can do is 
find seasons with players who meet a certain criteria. Mm -hmm. So you could, if you wanted, you could look up all the players who've hit 50 home runs in history, uh, or you could look up how many players hit 50 home runs in each season um, and see which seasons had the most players that did that. So I, I use that and I, um, I set my parameters as uh, the years 1998 to 2013 and minimum of 20 games played in a season and uh, played 100% of games at every position. One of the things you can do is filter by position and you can set the threshold for position at however many games you want. So I usually lower it to 5% if I want to capture all major leaguers. But in this case, I set it to 100% of games at a certain position. And then I just uh, looked to see where 2013 ranked. And so I, I went... Um, uh, I went position by position, and in fact, uh, this is a case where the evidence supports the kind of half-formed hypothesis that there are fewer one-dimensional players, mm-hmm. uh, or that players are being deployed more creatively. Um, uh, so I'm going to go position by position, and you'll notice the trend. Uh, in cat- At catcher, there were 28 players last year who played exclusively catcher, uh, which is the lowest number since 1998. 16 seasons, this ranked 16th. Uh, First baseman, there were 11, which is one more than the lowest since 1998. Second baseman, there were 16 such players, uh, which was 12th out of 16. Uh, Third base, there were 10 players who played exclusively third base, which is 15th out of 16 seasons. Shortstop, 22, which was 11th. Left field had four, which is one more than the lowest ever. Uh, center field, there were 15, and that was ninth out of 16. And then the the closest thing, so that's almost the median. And then right field, uh, there were eight, which is tied with a whole bunch of others uh, for the median. So the best we can manage is median. All the others were below average and generally in the bottom two or three. Um, so this feels pretty convincing. And, and like sort of like what we talked about with stolen bases, where the trend away from stolen bases happened so abruptly after years of stolen bases sort of moving upward, um, all of a sudden it just totally turned around and we couldn't figure out why. Uh, this feels like a fairly recent phenomenon. 2012 mm-hmm. was generally uh, in the lower the lower portion, although not as extreme. 2011 skewed a little low. Um, but otherwise, if you start looking at the top of these lists, um, they're... Uh, you see, you know, the for instance, the most catchers who were exclusively catchers was 2004. Most first baseman was 2009. Most left fielders was 2008. Most right fielders 2008. Most center fielders 2010. Uh, catchers in 2011, the highest one, uh, 2011 was almost the highest. And so this is a pretty sudden thing that has happened. Um, and so I found that actually rather interesting. And so I wonder, do you think that this is a result of, of teams following the raised lead, or are we just sort of, uh, or is it conceivable that it's a different breed of player, that it's uh, without having quite the, uh, I hear you clicking, Ben. Mm, sorry. Just so you know. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind it. I just want to <laughs> let you know that I hear you. Uh-huh. Uh, do you, uh, or is it a different breed of player that's a little more athletic, a little bit more flexible? Uh, is it a turn away? F- I don't know. It, it could conceivably be a turn away from uh, prioritizing defense. Um, 
if that's happened uh, and feeling like players can move positions much more fluidly, hmm. or, or it could be that defensive metrics are better and we have a better appreciation for which positions a player can play without losing anything. I figure there are, are various possibilities for why it might happen, although I'm not sure any of those convince me. Do you have an idea? Uh, maybe it's a better appreciation for replacement level and how the the worst thing you can do potentially is to play someone who's just uh you know taking up plate appearances and contributing nothing and that more and more teams are making an effort to have someone who can someone at any position who can you know slide into the lineup and be a positive or at least not be a negative um i listened to an interview with uh Sam Grossman, who's an analyst with the Reds from last year, he was on C. Trent's podcast, and C. Trent at the end asked him what he thought the, what he thought the current, you know, your, your standard question about what what Moneyball is today, what is the big inefficiency now, uh, mm. and Grossman said that he he thought, or at least what he was willing to admit off the top of his head, was the multi-position player. Um, and the Reds, I think, had just signed Skip Schumacher, who was supposed to be that guy. Um, so maybe, I don't know, maybe it is that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether it's that players are just more athletic today, and therefore there are more players who are capable of playing multi- multiple positions at a, a competent level. That could have something to do with it. Russell Russell Carlton wrote an article for BP about... I don't know, the Ben Zobrist effect, I think he called it. Um, and I think he put the value of having a multi-position guy at pretty small, like half a win or something, over over what his his warp would say just based on his stats, um, yeah. just from being able to to sub him in, to not use someone worse, to, to have some flexibility. And I, I, it actually didn't account, I think, for the, the planning aspect, which is that you know, if you are Andrew Friedman and you know that you have Ben Zobrist and you you need to have a second baseman and you need to have a right fielder, but you have some flexibility in filling those positions because Zobrist can go either way. He, you could stick him in at either place, so you have the freedom to pursue the best deal or the best player you can get for the money. If it if that happens to be a second baseman. Great. If it's a right fielder, great. And you can just put Zobrist in the other place so that it it increases your options from a, a planning perspective, which is probably something that's even more difficult to account for. Um, so th- those things. I, th- I think that we might uh, be answering this from the wrong the wrong direction, though, because what what this shows isn't really that there are necessarily more utility types. It shows that guys who are not utility types are being used in slightly more utility-like fashion, right? It's not that there's more Skip Schumacher in the game or more Nick Punto, um, although there might be a little bit. It's really that, um, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to come up with a name off the top of my head, um, but, you know, players are sort of being asked to to play different positions or to, to move around a little bit more, right? Uh-huh. Isn't that... Probably what we're talking about. Yeah, I maybe mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe there are more players who are capable of doing that. I, yeah, we don't know whether yeah. it's that they are more capable of doing that or they're just being asked to do things that they weren't asked to do before. 
I'm sorry. I was. I feel like I was a little curt on the uh, clicking. I didn't mean to be curt. I was. I was speaking so quickly that that the that uh, the, that that it created a, a curt response. I, I don't even know why I said anything. Uh, so apologies for that. Uh, I have a Accepted. quick trivia. I have a quick trivia or quick quiz for you. Okay. Uh, as I noted, left field was the uh, the position where there were the fewest uh, all at one position guys. There were four last year. Four mm. players who played nothing but left field. Don't you start typing. <laughs> okay. Don't you go use your play index here. <laughs> okay. I will say that for all the greatness that play index is, it's the greatest thing in the world, but it has ruined trivia. <laughs> yes. Everybody everybody just got the answer on the tip of their fingers. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, who, are, who are the four players who last year played 20 games or more and didn't play any position but left field? Uh, Crawford? Nope. Ludwig? Nope. Well, I'm done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ryan Braun, who has already played another position this year. Uh-huh. Uh, Michael Brantley, mm-hmm. who I'm checking uh, has already played another position this year. Holiday? Uh, not Holiday. Hmm. Uh, he did in 2004. He was on this list in 2004 and 2008 and 2005 and 2009. Hmm. Four-timer, but okay. not last year. Uh, so, uh, Alex Gordon, uh-huh. uh, who is so far is all left field and, uh, this year and Roger Kishnick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that wouldn't, would have taken me a while. I, I was sort of hoping you would get the first three really easily and then <laughs> insist on going through every I, left fielder. If I got Roger Kishnick first and then was stumped on the other one. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, he uh, he hasn't played yet uh, in the majors this year, so he's still safe. Although he has played uh, in AAA this year, and he has only played right field in AAA. So, uh-huh. uh, one last thing about this: uh, the reason that I originally started looking is just because I was fiddling around with how many players there have been total in baseball, and I'm I'm fascinated by the way that the number of players that get used has been going up, and I. Don't I? I assume the answer has something to do with bullpen usage, but I'm not sure I can make that make sense. I don't know why that would matter. But um, uh, in 19, uh, 1997, which was the last year, last year I should say, last year there were 1,304 players who appeared in the majors. That's an all-time record. Uh, so even though it's been 16 years since expansion, it continues to go up, mm. setting new records. At, oh, really, setting new records almost every year. Um, and so by comparison in 1997, the last year before expansion, um, there were 1120 players. So 180 more players are playing now than used to play. Hmm. And, uh, it's interesting that they've found 180 players who are qualified to play. And I, so then I I was looking at how many players were under replacement level, Uh uh, thinking, well, maybe the 180 are all below replacement level. And the exact Almost the exact same percentage are under replacement level now as were. It's actually 35% in 2013 with the larger pool and 36% in 1997 with the smaller pool. But uh, it then occurred to me that I believe that baseball references replacement level uh, is actually fixed in a way that it's fixed to the that basically yes. mm-hmm. it 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 reacts to basically it reacts to the uh, to the league in a way that like the same number of wins have to always exist or something like that 
I forget. I got yeah, confused. But that's right, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's not a coincidence that, that this is like replacement level has changed because of this, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So so that's just a coincidence. That's not a coincidence. That's by design. Mm-hmm. But still, 180 more players. I wonder how high we can go because presumably this will keep going. Um, I wonder how many will be the max. I wonder how many players Major League Baseball could could possibly cram into its hmm. into its diamonds. Well, we we talked about how high the percentage of lefty on lefty pitcher versus batter plate appearances could go. So maybe that's the same question. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. How short can relief? How short can the average start and average relief outing be? Um, all right, this this question, uh, this is actually two two related questions and sort of related to the one that we just answered. This one comes from Kevin in Toronto. As a lifelong Tigers fan with the news that Jose Iglesias is gone for the season, I started to think about how the late-inning defensive replacement is becoming less commonplace. Given that most teams now carry a 12- or 13-man pitching staff, this means fewer bench players and fewer opportunities to carry that defensive wizard. My question, who leads MLB in appearances in the field without getting an official plate appearances in, uh, plate appearance in 2013? And how many did he have? Has this number declined over time? Um, so so I, this is this is not, not a player who played in 70 games and never got a plate appearance. He's just asking right. how many how many how many games they appeared in where they didn't get a plate appearance. Yeah. Uh, so this is okay. this is also kind of a play a play index question. So I just I just uh, looked quickly and last year the the leader in games played in which that player did not have a plate appearance was Sam Fold with 40 such games. Wow, um, that's a lot. Yeah, of course sounds... he was running a lot. I'm sure. So. <laughs> uh, pinch, right, like, right, but yes. he would have pinch run some of them. Yeah, this this includes pinch run. I could uh, let's see if I take pinch run off, then Sam Fold. Eh, he, he's still at the top with 37, so it doesn't actually change it that much. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I just kind of cherry picked other years, um, just you know round numbers. So that was 2013. So. If you go back to, say, uh, 1980, um, it's a bigger number. 1980, Mick Kelleher played in 54 games without getting a plate appearance in those games. In 1970, Jose Arcia played in 51 games uh, like that. In 1960, Al Spangler played in 52 so, um, so it was in the low 50s in, in 1960, 1970, and 1980, but if you go back to 1950, then the high is only 32, Joe Collins. If you go back to 1930, the high is only 21, Ray Gardner. So uh, it probably has something to do with the offensive environment as well as how rosters are constructed. I mean, 19... 19- 30 was a big offense era. 1950 was a big offense era. So that maybe has something to do with it. Of course, there were there were fewer games then also. So um, I, I don't know which it's more closely tied to, but a related question we got from Vinit said, wait, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Can I just throw something in here? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just looked at the leaders since 1998. Uh-huh. Sticking with my 1998, and uh, friend of the podcast Gabe Kapler is near the top with 109. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Seventeenth, seventeenth overall. But but the other thing is that the guy who leads by a lot, in fact, 
is actually, I'm ashamed to say this, I've never heard of him. He's a player who did this 206 times, and probably everybody else has heard of him. I've heard of every name on this list. I swear it. <laughs> Except I've never heard of Charles Gibson with a P. Do you know Charles Gibson? Yeah, I couldn't tell you anything about him, really. But he, uh, was he on yeah, the Braves? He was not. He was never on the Braves. Well, I clearly don't know much about Charles Gibson. Uh, not a not a base stealer, uh, although he did pinch run, uh, but could play uh, could play a few positions. Hmm. Plus twelve defender in three hundred and seventy career games. Mm-hmm. So Vinit also asked about defensive replacements. He said, "Does it make sense to have defensive replacements in the late innings?" One, defensive replacements are generally made in the last one to two innings when either the setup man or the closer is in to pitch. Two, setup and closers have higher strikeout and walk rates than starters, meaning they use defense the least. So it stands to reason, shouldn't defensive replacements actually be the starters with an offensive replacement made in the third or fourth inning? Uh, that I don't know about, but it, it does seem like defensive replacements probably make less sense than they used to. Um, just just based on the fact that the league-wide strikeout rate has gone up, there are fewer balls in play, and uh, and when defensive replacements tend to come in in the eighth or ninth inning, that's when the highest strikeout rates, the highest strikeout rate guys are in. Whereas, you know, in 1930, 1950, the ninth inning was probably still the starter, and at that point, he was probably less effective and maybe was giving up more balls in play. Whereas now you are allowing a lot fewer balls in play in those innings. So you would think that the value of a defensive replacement has declined um, in the, the modern era. Right? That, that stands to reason, I would think. Charles Gibson was a 63rd round pick and made $1.6 million. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. But I agree with everything you said. Okay. Um, and I 21 21% of his appearances were as a starter. Hmm, wow. How many years? Uh, over the course of seven. Wow. Interesting yeah. career. Maybe maybe eight. Might have been eight. Mostly with the Mariners, but then uh, then the one team per year at the end for the final four years. I once compelled Russell Carlton to do an article on whether there was a, a pinch of. A, a, a defensive replacement penalty equivalent to the pinch hit penalty where a guy comes in off the bench and he's not as good yeah. at the plate. And I, I think he didn't really find any evidence of a defensive replacement penalty in mm. terms of fielding. But um, We've been asked that before. Uh, well, I, I wondered that and I, I eventually asked him to do it. Um, but I think uh, Vinit has a point and that dovetails with, with Kevin's question. So... The number has has declined a bit over time, at least if you compare it to the more recent decades. But if you compare it to previous decades where offense was high, then it has not really declined. Um, and it probably should decline for the reasons that Vinit brings up. Um, so that's, that's defensive replacements. All right. So we are finished. Goodbye. Okay. Uh, please support our sponsor. You just heard us use the play index to do cool things. You can also do those things. If you go to baseballreference.com, subscribe to the play index, use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Please rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes. It 
helps the show's audience grows grow and and helps inflate our egos. And please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild, which is now well over 1,100 members busily talking about baseball. And please send us emails for next week's show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com.